Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. You know, I had one person write me on the new email address I've been giving you, hello at crossexamine.org, seeking clarification on last week's brief discussion about the Supreme Court. A couple of weeks ago, we had an extended discussion about it, but I had mentioned, and I want to clear this up for you listeners uh, who may have heard me say that I, I said that even if the famous Roe versus Wade decision is overturned, that wouldn't necessarily mean that abortion would suddenly become illegal across America. And the reason for that is it depends on how the Supreme Court would rule if it decided to overturn Roe. It could overrule it in at least two ways. It could overrule it by saying, well, this is a state issue. Let's send it back to the states, which is probably how they would rule. And if that would be the case, then the each state would individually decide what its abortion laws would be like they did prior to Roe versus Wade. They each state had the ability to criminalize abortion or allow it or restrict it, however they wanted to deal with it, however they wanted to legislatively uh, uh, deal with the issue of abortion. Remember, there's only three things a government can do on any issue. It can we, we call them the three P's. It can prohibit a behavior. It can permit a behavior or it can promote a behavior. Prohibit, permit, promote. And uh, that's those are the only things it can do. Uh, now, when it comes to per, to prohibit, it could prohibit it completely or prohibit it partially with regard to restrictions. And that's probably if a court were to deal with Roe, that's probably what it would do. It would probably send it back to the way it was in 1973 before it ruled on the issue that the states have the right to regulate abortion however way they want. They can allow it or they can restrict it or they completely prohibit it. The other way that it could be dealt with, probably a less likely way, is for the court to decide that somewhere in the Constitution, there's a right to life from the moment of conception. Now, here's where the confusion comes in. At least one person was thinking that I was saying, well, you don't believe that life begins at the moment of conception. No, I do. And personally, I think abortion ought to be outlawed with the exception of the life of the mother. You know, if the mother is going to die, a fallopian tube pregnancy or something like that, well, there's no option. You have to save the mother. But these convenience abortions that we hear about, which is the vast, vast majority of abortions are convenience. We just, they just don't want the baby. Th those shouldn't happen. Uh, adoption is the better option. In any event, the point here is, is while, while I believe life begins at conception, it's not just my belief. It's a, it's a medical fact. It's a scientific fact. Life does begin at conception. You've got a, com a completely separate genetic human being from the moment of conception onward. That's not even scientifically debatable anymore. Uh, well, I believe that's the case. When it comes to the Constitution, does the Constitution somewhere say that life begins at conception? And I, it, I, it doesn't, unless you're going to say that somehow when they passed the 14th Amendment, which was dealing with a way to ensure that states did not 
did not discriminate against newly freed slaves, and they didn't want to. Pre- they wanted to prevent people from from being treated unfairly and not having their due process rights. That when the Fourteenth Amendment was passed and ratified, did the people who passed and ratified it did they think that that amendment was applying to the uh, unborn children at the time? And according to Justice Scalia, I heard him talk about this at one point. He said in his view, and he's very conservative, as you know, that persons in the 14th Amendment were live born persons, not unborn persons. So if you wanted to be a originalist when it comes to the Constitution, if you're going to want the Constitution to say that a human being has the right to life from the moment of conception, then you need a constitutional amendment to say that. Now, this is arguable, admittedly. It might be that the court would say, well, it was meant to protect all persons and all persons uh, are persons from the moment of conception. They, they could they could probably justifiably rule that way. But they could easily justifiably rule. This is where the gray area is. They could easily justifiably rule that no persons meant from the moment of uh, from a birth, not the moment of conception. That's the point. And in that case, they would just send the issue back to the states and the states would decide. And probably a majority of states or at least probably half the states would 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 decide to keep abortion legal. Uh, Others would probably keep it legal to a certain period and then restrict it. Others might prohibit it. Okay, So, again, my view and I think the scientific view is life begins in conception. The question is, does the Constitution teach that? Does the Constitution have that as part of its of its document and and the answer probably is no although i'm i'm totally willing to be talked out of that <laughs> i'm just saying i'm just pointing out what probably is going to be the result if the court ever overturns roe v wade it's going to be turned back to the states and the states are going to have to decide because look criminal law is a, is an issue for the states in most cases, it's not a, normally a federal issue. It's a state issue. The states deal with criminal law. We have states rights here. It's the United States of America. We have federalism, which means that the, that the uh, according to the 10th Amendment of the United States Constitution, what is not spoken of in the Constitution, these rights are reserved for the people in the states. We're supposed to have a weak federal government and strong state governments. That's theoretically what our Constitution uh, not theoretically, that's what the Constitution was designed to do. Unfortunately, it's uh, it's actually been reversed, and we have a strong federal government and weak state governments now, where the feds have pretty much usurped the authority of the states. So, again, I believe life begins at conception. I think it's a scientific fact. The question is, does the Constitution actually teach that? And that's an arguable point. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. We'll see what happens and by, by the way, it takes at least four votes on the Supreme Court to bring a case to it. And more than 90 percent of the cases that could arise to the Supreme Court are rejected by the court or not taken by the court. There's probably a better way of putting it. They just don't take the case. So in order for Roe v. Wade or any other issue to be overturned or any other court case to be overturned, there has to be a dispute at a lower court level, and then the Supreme Court has to decide to take it. So it's probably a long shot anyway for the a case like this to arise to the Supreme Court to begin with. And then the question is, once it does arise to the Supreme Court level, how do they 
rule on it, even if they ruled to overturn it, it probably wouldn't outlaw abortion. It would probably go back to the states and the states would have to decide. So you'd have to persuade your fellow citizens in your state what to do with it. And by the way, that's the way our Constitution is set up. If you want to put a new constitutional right into the Constitution, like you want to have abortion, a constitutional right, you don't pass a law like Roe v. Wade. That's that's not a law anyway. It's a dispute. It's a court case. What you do is you amend the Constitution. That's why the amendment process is there to begin with. In fact, there's a there's an article, uh, a, a uh, article on National Review. And I think the title goes something like this. Liberals don't fear Brett Kavanaugh. What they fear is the Constitution. Exactly. They fear the Constitution because the Constitution does not give them the rights that the Supreme Court has given them through Roe v. Wade. A fair reading of the Constitution, there's, there's nothing in the Constitution that has anything to say about abortion. In fact, even, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually agreed that Roe was, de- was decided wrongly. It's not a valid way to rule on that issue because the, the Supreme, I mean, the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. And then, the, you know, the, the court talks about viability and Roe v. Wade and all this. Viability, where's viability in the Constitution? It's not anywhere. And yet they're just inventing this out of whole cloth, which means that we're not governing ourselves. The court is governing us. That's an oligarchy. That's tyranny. And so we need conservatives on the Supreme Court to rule the way they should rule, the way the law is written. Now we're going to get back to the big questions of life and some of your questions right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network back in just two minutes. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. What are the big questions in life? Previous three programs or podcasts We've had previous. We've had three previous podcasts on it. This is our fourth on the big questions in life, and here are some of the questions we've covered in the previous podcast. Why does anything exist? Why is there a universe? Does God exist? What kind of God? If there is a God, or if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? Do you have to investigate every religion to discover which one is true, if any are true? Why is the universe so orderly? Where did the laws of nature come from? Why is the universe fine-tuned? Why is their reliable cause and effect. Why is there such a thing as evidence to begin with? We, we talked about that in a previous podcast. How did life begin? And in fact, in our previous podcast, we covered these questions. Why can our minds discover truths about the external world? What is the source of the laws of logic and mathematics? Why is there such a thing as probability? Why are we conscious? We covered Sam Harris's theory on that. He's an atheist who says consciousness is an illusion. We pointed out how that was self-defeating. Now let's move on to some other questions today. Like, what is the source of objective moral obligations? And in fact, the reason we're going to bring that up, uh, it happens to dovetail nicely with some questions I've got recently recently from you via email. And uh, the email, again, is hello at crossexamine.org. Samuel writes, 
a question about objective morality, and he was having a discussion with an unbeliever on this issue, uh, and it had to do with, I think, sexuality and homosexuality. It, it's a long email. I can't read the whole thing. Uh, but he said, uh, this Samuel said in response to this gentleman asking him the question, he said, I explained that homosexuality was not only against God's verbal commands in the Bible, but it also does not work into how humans are designed. In conclusion, I said, we have the verbal commandments of the Bible plus verifiable evidence, human design, that homosexuality is wrong. My friend stated that it doesn't matter about the design or that God said it was wrong. He said that it is God's opinion. And that man can disagree, thus making it subjective. He also added that morality can still be subjective without detracting from God's deity. I countered by asking that if there was no defined way of labeling things right and wrong, i.e. murder and rape may be okay if everything's relative, how, so how could society hold anyone accountable? He simply replied, it's about doing the most good. Okay, <laughs> well, there's a lot to respond to in this discussion here. But first of all, if someone were to say about it's about doing the most good, my question is, what do you mean by good? What is good? Define what good is. And here's the problem. If you, tr if you try and define what good is, or define what justice is, say, there's no real way to define it or ground it without ultimately referencing a personal moral being whose essence is goodness or justice or righteousness. Because if there is no standard beyond humanity, then everything is just a matter of opinion. It's just my opinion against your opinion, as Samuel was trying to say to his friend here. And we've talked about this at length on many occasions. And if you want more on this, uh, the two books that I deal with this issue at, at great length is one is called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. The other is called stealing from God, why atheists need God to make their case. In fact, I deal with this issue of just calling something good without reference, without any grounding. Uh, I, I deal with that in the book, Stealing from God. So if you want the more robust answer, get the book, Stealing from God, and, and read that section in there. Uh, but the main point here is, is that when you start asking people to define what they mean by good, you know what they'll typically do? They'll typically give you examples of good. Well, love is good, or you know, helping somebody's good, or seeking their flourishing is good. And, and, I, I, and I, what you want to say is that, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want a, an example. I want a definition. It's like when you ask people what's evil, they're going to give you examples. Well, rape is evil, murder is evil. No, no, I don't want a, I don't want examples. I want a definition. And when you get to a definition, it's really hard to describe evil, say, without reference to good. And it's really hard to define good without reference to God. Because what we mean by good is God's nature. If God's nature doesn't exist, if goodness, if justice, if, if righteousness doesn't exist, external to us, then everything is just reduced to human opinion and everything's subjective and relative. And of course, we know things aren't subjective or relative. We know that torturing babies for fun is not just my opinion. We know that crucifying children like ISIS does is not just an opinion. It's not just a matter of taste, like wearing white after Labor Day. or any other cultural norm. It's actually really wrong to torture babies for fun. It's actually really wrong to rape people or murder them. It's not just my opinion. It's not just your opinion. There's a standard beyond us. And so when the atheist says, well, it just means doing good, that's what we're supposed to do. Well, I agree we're supposed to do good. The question is, what is good? What, is, what grounds goodness? 
And you can know that without reference to God. You can know it. You just can't justify it. Like, for example, an atheist can say, and they'll say this quite frequently, they'll say, I can know what goodness is. I can know what the right thing to do is and not believe in God. True. You could know it. You just can't justify it. For example, I can know what a book says. I can read the words in the book and deny there's an author. I can, I can know exactly what the book says and say there's no author of the book. The problem is there would be no book to read unless there was an author. So I'll, similarly, I can know right and wrong and deny God exists, but I have no way of justifying right and wrong unless God exists. So the point here is what grounds goodness? And why should I do good if there is no standard beyond us and there will be no moral accountability ultimately? Why shouldn't I just take self-interest in mind and take people's stuff to get what I want, maybe kill them to get what I want? Why shouldn't I do that? Now you say, well, this Frank is a pragmatic argument. Well, but I hear this all the time. I hear people saying that, Atheists saying, well, you know, we couldn't live in a society if we didn't have these rules. We have to cooperate in order to get along. We have to cooperate to have us. No, you don't. No, you don't. In many cases, you don't have to cooperate. In many cases, you can cheat other people and enhance your own survival at their expense. You don't have to cooperate. I mean, sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes you can get away with not cooperating. And you get what you want, and the other person is cheated, or the other person may be hurt in some way. Look at Stalin, for example. Stalin had to cooperate with very few people to get what he wanted done. He just had to uh, cooperate with his henchmen, and uh, they took care of the rest. And he lived a very comfortable life. He died at age 74, shaking his fist at God one last time before he took his last breath. But he didn't have to cooperate. You don't have to cooperate to get ahead in many cases. You can cheat, lie, steal, murder your way to the top. So the point here is, is that there is no such thing as good unless God exists. There's no way to ground good. You can know it. You can live it. But you can't justify it. So. Good question from Sam on that. Uh, also have a question here from Aiden. This is an interesting question that Aiden brings up. Let's take a look at this one. And it's related uh, again to the, uh, well, actually an issue that we covered in a previous podcast regarding the fine tuning. And he said he recently came across on a, an article by Richard Carrier on the subject of uh, 10 arguments used for God that aren't good arguments, apparently. Um, again, I'm summarizing here because it's a long email. He said, I know Carrier's not, res- not a respected scholar when it comes to the Christ myth. He, he thinks Jesus was a myth. Yeah, he's not respected in that regard because almost everyone says Jesus did exist. Uh, he said, however, Carrier said, there's a few things Carrier mentioned that made me think. For example, he used the fine-tuning argument for evidence against God because 99.99% of the universe is lethal to life, and if there was indeed a creator, we would expect all the universe to be life-permitting. 
my only response I could think of was that God specifically created the earth for mankind and the rest of the universe is to reveal his glory. I'm not sure if this is a sound response. Uh, okay, let's stop right there. Well, first of all, um, what Carrier's trying to do is Carrier's trying to figure out that God should do things a certain way for God to exist. And if God doesn't do it that way, God doesn't exist. Well, how does he know that? Secondly, Carrier's looking at the wrong thing. He's saying, well, 99.99% of the universe is, uh, is hostile to life, so that shows there's no God. Well, wait a minute. What about the 0.001% of the universe that is teeming with life? In fact, let me give you an analogy here. Uh, let's say you're walking through the Sahara Desert. There's nothing but sand for miles and miles and miles. And as you're walking, you come across an iPhone laying there right in the desert floor. Does that iPhone require a cause? Even though most of what appears to you looks like it was just put there by natural forces. In other words, most, most of the Sahara Desert has nothing in it. No evidence of, of what we would say design, other than the fact that the, the, the Sahara Desert was, was, of course, created. But let's leave that aside. I mean, the only, the only piece of technology out there is this iPhone. Does the fact that you have miles and miles and miles, 99.999% of the Sahara Desert is barren to technology or signs of life, does that mean that the iPhone had no designer or no creator? No, obviously it does. The iPhone still has a need for a designer and a creator, or a creator and a designer, even though most of what's around it is barren of that, is barren of signs of design. Now, of course, I would go to argue that the very sand in the Sahara Desert is held together by natural forces that require a lawgiver, natural laws. And the very sand that's there is a material thing, or, or, or they're material entities. And we know that matter had a creation. Matter is composed, so it requires a composer. I mean, we can go down that road and say, look, even the sand cries out that there's got to be a creator. But let's leave that aside for a second. Let's just go ahead with the analogy and say, look, even if the sand doesn't need a creator or designer, certainly the iPhone does. So Carrier's point doesn't stand. And to say that God, we would expect God to, to create the entire universe with life um, is maybe an unreasonable expectation. How do we know that without knowing what God's intentions are? Maybe God wanted this to be mostly barren of life. And we'll talk maybe more about that on the other side of the break. We, we, we don't know without knowing what the mind of God is. All right, you're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. More on the big questions of life and your questions right after the break. So don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org. It's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. Also, our website uh, has numerous resources on it. I also want to tell you about our Facebook pages, crossexamine.org and DR Frank Turek. And by the way, when we go to college events, we stream our college events live on those Facebook pages. So if you want to be sure that you uh, actually see those, make sure you like our Facebook pages. And actually, that's not going to ensure you see them, but it'll increase the possibility you'll see those uh, live events. Also, if you download our free app, we'll send you a a uh, notification when those are happening so you can watch them right off your app, the Cross-Examined app, two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. want to mention I'm going to be in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, when am I going to be there? Tuesday, July 24th and Wednesday, July 25th for the Vertical 3 Conference, which is a national student conference taking place there uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. will be a couple of thousand young people there. It's at the Robinson Center. If you want more details, go to our website, crossexamine.org. Click on events. And if you're anywhere near Little Rock, Arkansas, I'd love to see you there. I won't be the only speaker. There'll be other speakers as well. So that's coming up the 24th and the 25th of July. All right. We're talking about the big questions of life. We talked about the source of objective moral obligations. We just talked a little bit about the fine tuning. And I mentioned that you can't know uh, whether something is designed rightly or wrongly, unless you know the intentions of the designer. And uh, so to say that, well, life, the universe should have more life in it uh, in order for God to exist. First of all, you can't know that unless you know the intentions of God or the designer. And secondly, if any life exists, it cries out for a designer, just like the iPhone in the desert cries out for a creator of the iPhone, even if all the rest of the desert cries out for no similar type of creator. Uh, so Carrier's argument doesn't work. Uh, the email was sent by Aiden. I'm going to continue with this email here. He says... Um, that, uh, let's see, Carrier goes on to say, atheism predicts, or this makes sense in light of atheism. And this young man, Aiden, says, and he's only 15 years old, he lives in New York City. He says, uh, he says, my first problem with this remark was atheism doesn't predict anything. Atheists do. Hey, he's been listening to the podcast. <laughs> That's right. And my second problem is that if, if, uh, if it, if, Atheism were true, why should we expect anything at all to exist? Good question. That is my first question. He also said that with regard to evolutionary science, this is what Carrier said, the simple to complex life forms over billions of years is what we see in the scientific record. He then states that this would make no sense from a theistic perspective because why would God wait billions of years to create one life form for an, uh, from another life form or or come up with something to create. The only response I could think up was that God, God is by definition outside of time. And therefore the time gaps we see in the fossil record is perfectly consistent with a timeless God. 
Well, that's certainly true, but it presupposes that what Carrier's saying is true to begin with, that we all evolved from the first one-celled creature without intelligent intervention. And as we've talked about numerous times on this podcast and in other places, the evidence does not show that's true. Now, it is true that the fossil record goes from simple to complex, uh, but that could be a, a result of a number of things. And it could be, as you say here, Aiden, that as you, Ross, would argue, that God created over long periods of time and did go from simple to complex. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily prove evolution or disprove creation to have the fossil record the way it is. In fact, as we've said on this program before, the biggest problem with the fossil record for the evolutionists is that the major body plans, at least 20 out of the 28 major body plans or phyla, arise simply, seemingly out of nowhere in the fossil record in something called the Cambrian explosion, according to their, to their dating about 500 plus million years ago. They just, they just come up out of nowhere with no fossil precursors. It's as if they were created and just put there which is why Darwin called this his greatest doubt of his theory. He called it Dar it's called Darwin's doubt because Darwin doubted that if the if the gradualism were true that we should see all these intermediate fossils in the fossil record. We don't find that at all. We just find all this stuff immediately created seemingly seemingly instantaneously in the fossil record. So um what Carrier's saying isn't even true. But good question, Aiden. 15-year-old from New York City. Uh, good question. Good interaction there. I mean, we'll go back to the big questions in life. Where does evil come from? That's a big question. And by the way, Augustine struggled with this question uh, back in the 400s AD because he said, God created all things. Evil is a thing. Therefore, God created evil. And he puzzled over that for quite a period of time. Because if those two premises are true, that God created all things and evil is a thing, then therefore the conclusion necessarily follows that God created evil. How could God create evil? God is supposed to be the standard of good. How could he create evil? And then Augustine realized that the second premise of his syllogism there, that evil is a thing, isn't really true. Because evil is not a thing. Evil is a lack in a good thing. Evil is a privation in a good thing. Evil is a parasite. Evil doesn't exist unless good exists. You say, how so? Give me some examples. Well, evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of the car, you got a better car. If you take all the car out of the rust, you got nothing. You just got a you know, rust spot on the pavement. You know, rust can't exist unless there's something good to exist in. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a body, you got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got nothing. See, cancer can't exist unless it's existing in a good body. So evil isn't a thing in itself. It's a privation or a lack or a degradation of a good thing. It only exists in a good thing. So evil can't exist unless good exists. But the problem for the atheist is, is that good can't exist unless God exists. We're back to the argument we talked about earlier. That evil only exists if good exists and good only exists if God exists. So where does evil come from? It actually comes from free will. We have, our, we have the ability to make choices, which makes this a moral world. Here's the problem. Since we have the ability to do good, and you can only really do good if you have the ability to not do good. Otherwise, it's not a moral choice. You have to have the moral ability to choose evil. 
in order to choose good. The problem is, obviously, you have the moral ability to do good. You also have the moral ability to do evil. So evil just comes from our own free choice. We have the ability to make moral choices. And that, of course, began with Adam. Well, actually, there was a fall before the fall. There was uh, the fall of Satan. But here in our earthly physical creation, it began with Adam. And he made the choice. Adam and Eve made the choice. And we've been suffering for it ever since. And that's why God had to come rescue us. That's why he added humanity to his deity, came to earth, lived the perfect life in our place, allowed the creatures who rebelled against him to torture and kill him so he could take their punishment on himself, our punishment on himself. While we were still still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, people will die for a good man. It's very rare that someone will die for a bad man. I think Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. God died for us. He actually took evil upon himself. And at the end of the day, there's only two locations. There's heaven where evil will no longer exist. And then there's hell where evil will be quarantined. So if there is a God and there is, and if there is an afterlife and there is, there's only two possible locations. You're either going to be with God in the afterlife, that's heaven. Or you're going to be separated from God in the afterlife. That's hell. And so your choice will determine to which one of those two places you go. So evil comes from our own free choice, ultimately. God doesn't do evil. God doesn't do evil, but he creates the possibility for evil by giving us free choice. Of course, if he doesn't give us the possibility for evil, then we couldn't love either. So evil ultimately comes from choice. Now, why do we have free will? That's another question. Well, some atheists are going to deny we have free will. And then you're going to ask them what? Did you freely come to that conclusion? <laughs> because to use, to, to deny free will is actually to use free will to say it. And again, if we're just moist robots, molecular machines, then we shouldn't believe anything we think, including the idea that we don't have free will, including the idea that atheism is true. If we can't freely reason to conclusions, then why should we believe anything we think? Free will is best explained by the fact that we're not just a body, we're also a soul. We're not just a brain, we're also a mind. There's a duality to human nature. And so we have the ability to make free will choices. This can't be explained by atheistic materialism. Atheistic materialism has made free will impossible and also reason impossible. Because again, If we can't freely follow evidence to its logical conclusion, then we don't have free will and we can't reason to true conclusions, at least not consistently. We may swerve into it if we're just moist robots on occasion, but we can't rely on our faculties if we don't have free will. And free will, therefore, is better explained by the Christian or the theistic worldview than the atheistic worldview. How about this big question? What's the purpose or meaning of life? Yeah, there's a biggie. Why don't we talk about that? By the way, if there's no purpose to life, there's no right way to live it. Just like if there's no purpose to a football game, there's no right way to play it. Look, if there were no purpose to a football game, there'd be no way to tell whether your quarterback throwing a touchdown was a better play than your quarterback throwing an interception. Because if there's no purpose to the game, then you can't say that the touchdown was better than the interception. Without purpose, there's no right way to play life or wrong way to play life. There's no right way to play a game or wrong way to play a game. 
So there's got to be a purpose to life. And what is the purpose to life? Is it to get a bunch of stuff and then you die? Is it to just feel good here as long as you can, avoid pain and suffering, and then you die? Well, that wouldn't be ultimate, right? I mean, once you die, if that's it, it's not ultimate. Nothing will ultimately matter because at some point, the entire universe is going to destruct unless somebody intervenes to prevent its destruction. We're all going to go to heat death, so nothing will ultimately matter. Is there a real purpose or meaning to life? That's a big question. What do you think it is? Every worldview has to answer that. Of course, the atheists are going to say there is no ultimate purpose or meaning to life. Well, if there is no ultimate purpose or meaning to life, then why do you seem to have all sorts of problems with the way Christians want to live then? What does it matter to you? Oh, we're going to impose our view on you. Well, it shouldn't really matter then, at least not ultimately. There's no purpose or meaning. You, you see, you can't really consistently live as if there's no purpose or meaning because you, you create all these purposes or meanings. Oh, there's just your own subjective purposes or meanings. Okay, well then don't impose your subjective purpose or meaning on anybody else. But that's what you want to do, don't you? Well, what is the purpose or meaning of life? We're going we're gonna to come back to that. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. We'll come back to that and some more, more of your questions right after the break, so don't go away. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. So what is the purpose or meaning of life? One of the big questions we're dealing with today here on Cross-Examine with Frank Turek. By the way, I want to mention that in September, the new Fearless Faith course is coming out. Go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses. And the beauty of these courses is that you don't just watch a bunch of video and answer a bunch of questions and try and apply these, this material to your lives. You also come live online and ask the instructors, the authors of the book, questions in, in, in the way we set up courses. So you'll be able to come online live via Zoom video and ask questions of both me, not just both, there's three instructors in this one, myself, Jay Warner Wallace, cold case homicide detective, and Mike Adams, uh, Dr. Mike Adams from UNC Wilmington. We teach this fearless, fearless faith course for uh, students and also people that are just out there in the workplace on how to have a fearless faith and be able to defend the Christian faith and ask questions of others who may have a different worldview and how you can bring them more toward the Christian worldview. That's what the Fearless Faith course is all about. Uh, for those who are going to high school or college, it'll also help you be prepared for the hostility that you're going to, you're going to experience in high school and college. And it's even going to help you if you're going to college, how to pick the right college. That's what this course, Fearless Faith, will do. So go to crossexamine.org. You can read all about it. Click on online courses. You can read all about it there. Uh, and it's a unique. It, it, if you haven't been on Zoom video, for those who are old enough, if I say Hollywood Squares, you'll know what I mean. Remember that old show, Hollywood Squares, where you could see everybody? Well, that's like what Zoom video is. Uh, that's the software we use to, to run these courses where you come online live and you can see everybody as if they were on Hollywood Squares, and you can see me or whoever the instructor is. And um, 
you'll just raise your hand and I'll go, hey, Bill, you got a question. Go ahead. And so then you ask the question. We interact and everyone can see you and everyone can see me. And we just keep asking and answering questions that way. So it's a it's very intimate and it's a fun way of uh, dealing with Q&A. So and that's true of all the courses up there, uh, all the premium courses at crossexamine.org. Just click on crossexamine.org and it'll take you to a, the website, which has all the courses there. Uh, so Fearless Faith is coming up. We have I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We have Stealing from God. We have courses from Gary Habermas and Dan Wallace and uh, Michael Patton and others there. So check all that out up there. Okay, what is the purpose or meaning of life? And I think Jesus lays it out actually in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where he says in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life that they, meaning us, he's praying for us, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. So Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, now this is eternal life that they, meaning us, know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now notice that eternal life here is to know God. It's not, not just a quantity of time. It's a quality to know God. That's why we're here, to know God and to make him known. And when we say know God, we don't just mean to know him intellectually. Even the demons know that God exists, James chapter 2, but they tremble. They know intellectually better than we do that God exists, but they don't trust in him. See, there's a difference between knowing that God exists and trusting in him. You can know that somebody would be a good spouse, but that person doesn't become your spouse until you trust in that person and say, I do. So intellectually knowing that God exists is not enough. God isn't just interested in you intellectually acknowledging him. God is interested in a love relationship, which means you have to say, I do. You have to go from belief that to belief in. And this is what Jesus is talking about here, that they may know you. Not just that you exist, but know you. So the purpose of this life is to know God and to make him known through Christ. Who is God as the second person of the eternal Trinity. That's why we're here to know God and to make him known. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes to know and to grow in God requires pain. And there is pain and difficulty here in this life. Now, pain, evil, difficulty, suffering can have one of two effects on you. It can make you better or bitter. And it's really up to you what it does to you. Am I going to become better through this or bitter through this? Am I going to seek God or am I going to shun God because of this? Well, your ultimate purpose and meaning in life is to know God and to make him known. So how should we live then? We should live with that in mind. We should filter our decisions through that purpose and meaning. Just like a quarterback should filter his decisions through scoring touchdowns because the purpose of the game is to score more points than the other team. So when he's trying to figure out what he should do, he's going to try and throw a touchdown rather than an inter interception. Why? Because there's a purpose to the game. Well, there's a purpose to life too. Our purpose should be to know God and to make him known and take everything, everything that comes our way, as Paul says, look at it from the point of eternity. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says that our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a greater weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, have an eternal perspective to life because that's ultimately your, your purpose is to know the eternal God. That's what eternal life is. 
So the big question is, how can we live life so we can know and grow in God and make him known? That's why we're here. That's the big, one of the big questions. Another big question is, is how do we, why do we feel guilt? <laughs> because we're guilty. That's why. Okay, next question. How do we atone for this guilt and our bad moral behavior? We can't. We can't atone for it. Only Christ can. So we accept what he's done. We accept what he's done. We can't save ourselves. That's why Jesus came to earth, because we can't save ourselves. As Paul says in uh, Galatians, he says, he says, if righteousness could, could be attained through the law, then Christ died in vain. Of course, if there's another way of getting to God and to knowing God, there's another way other than, other than Christ, then we wouldn't even need Christ. And God wouldn't have sent his own son to die a brutal death. That would be in vain, as Paul says. So we can't atone for our own moral behavior. Every other, Christ, every other religious viewpoint is trying to atone for their own moral behavior. Each, each adherent to that religious system is trying to atone for their own moral behavior. Now you got to do so many good works. You got your good works have to obey or outweigh your, your, your bad works. And then you'll get in. That's what Islam teaches. Well, first of all, why do you think good works cancel bad works? Where does that come from? I mean, if you've committed a crime, it doesn't matter how many good works you do, you're still guilty of the crime. Now, somebody else can pay the fine for you. That's what God does. But you can't, you can't atone for it yourself. You're still guilty. Even atheists often try and atone for their bad behavior by doing good works. I'm not saying we shouldn't do good works. We're, as Paul says, we're created to do good works, but we're saved by grace through faith. And if we are saved, we will do good works. So we're saved by faith alone, but faith is not alone. Faith is accompanied by good works because out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us, we should do good works. That's part of knowing and growing in God. And it helps bring other people to God as well. Here's another big question. Why is there a New Testament? You ever ask yourself, why is there a New Testament at all? Why is there a New Testament? Who wrote the New Testament? What was their religious viewpoint before they became Christians? Well, they were all Jews, except for Luke. Luke's the only writer we know about. We don't know who wrote the book, the book of Hebrews, but obviously probably a previous Jew <laughs> written to the Hebrews, but um, everybody else is a, is a, is a Jew except for Luke. Why would Jews create a new Testament? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why would they do that? Why would they get themselves beaten, tortured and killed for something that was a lie? They wouldn't, there would be no new Testament if it wasn't for the resurrection. As I, as I said before in this program, that the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament if it wasn't for the resurrection. Do you realize that there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Yeah, why? Because they had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Why did Paul write the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans? 
or first and second Corinthians because he had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Why did Matthew write Matthew? Because he had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Why did John write John? Because he witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Why did Peter write? You get the idea. Because they witnessed the resurrected Jesus. In other words, Christianity would be true even if the Bible had never been written. It would still be true. Why? Because it's based on an event. Christianity is actually based on two central facts. God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. If those two facts are true, Christianity is true. Now, we wouldn't know much about it unless the New Testament was written. But the New Testament doesn't make Christianity true. The New Testament records that Christianity is true. As Andy Stanley has said, your birth certificate doesn't make you alive. Your birth certificate records the fact that you are alive. Your birth, your birth gave us the birth certificate, not the other way around. The birth certificate didn't give you your birth. Your birth gave you the birth certificate. The same way is true when it comes to the New Testament and the resurrection. The resurrection gave us the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't give us the resurrection. It didn't create the resurrection. It tells us about it, but it didn't create it. So you might also ask yourself the question, how did Christianity arise out of Judaism in the first century if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Everybody knew where the tomb was. How does this happen? How did Christianity arise out of Judaism in the first century if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? That's a big question. The answer is, it doesn't. The resurrection is what fueled this new movement out of ancient Judaism in the first century in Jerusalem. No resurrection, no Christianity. So Christianity is true regardless of whether or not the Bible's inerrant. Now, I believe the Bible's inerrant, don't get me wrong, but it's true because an event occurred. And we'll talk about this in a future program. Those are some of the big questions in life. Keep sending me your questions at hello at crossexamine.org. I'll try to get to as many of them as I can, and I'll see you right here next week. Thanks, friends. See you next time. God bless. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the Cross-Examined official podcast, three words on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support. 